Let's open our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. We had our text last Sunday in the last four verses of this chapter, but we have not yet studied it verse by verse, so let's go back. I'm going to do a very short review just to kind of get you in the the mode of where we are with 7 and 8. So Zechariah is divided into three separate sections. Um, Chapters 1 through 6, Zechariah is writing with the purpose of encouraging the people as they're building the temple. Then in 7 and 8, it it should have gone together. I wasn't able to finish it last week. 7 and 8 is the second section of the book of Zechariah, and it deals with um, why the Lord has dealt harshly with them. And then chapter 8 is just the opposite of chapter 7. It's going to be a very encouraging um, chapter that deals with the, the millennium. Then we'll get to 9 through 11 tonight. 9 through 11 is a section by itself. And then 12, 13, and 14 is going to deal with a section by itself. So as we look at... Um, Chapter 8 tonight, it's sort of chapters and verses where it's repetitive. For example, um, the expression, the Lord of hosts, is used 18 times. If you look down at verse 4, um, if this is a reoccurring phrase through this chapter. Um, we have Jerusalem mentioned six times, Zion Another reference that could be for Jerusalem is mentioned twice. The word jealous occurs three times, and the word remnant. Remnant are the ones that came back from Babylon. Somewhere between fifty and 60,000 of them came back, not all of them to Jerusalem, as we studied last week. Um, the, the final expression, thus says the Lord, occurs ten times. So what we have... Um, as we look at this chapter, is uh, the millennial period of time. And it talks about the Lord ruling. And it brings up a question, let's make it personal, right right from the get-go, because I just don't want to be able to give you a history lesson. Um, But our personal involvement of why we should Uh, take seriously our service for the Lord now because it's going to translate into what we do with him during the millennium. Now, during the millennium, we will be in a place that is described in Revelation um, 21 and 22, the New Jerusalem. And uh, it describes it in great detail, 14,000 miles by 14,000 miles, by 14,000 miles. It's either a cube or a pyramid, and it will be somewhat a little bit uh, smaller than the moon, if you want to put it in that in perspective. So we have that as our eternal home. That will always be your address for all eternity. The Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also. So if the Lord is going to be reigning in the kingdom age on planet Earth and the book of Revelation 
teaches that one of the promises to the churches is that we are going to rule and reign with him during the millennial reign. Now, here's where this blows my mind, because this isn't our home. So, you know, your morning commute, if you'd like, if we're going to rule and reign with him on the earth and our home is in a new Jerusalem, just let your mind wander a bit. How is that going to happen? Well, you're going to have the same bodies as, as the Lord had, and he was popping in and he was popping out of places whenever he wanted to. And I think travel time between planet Earth and the kingdom age and the new Jerusalem can be instantaneous, just like that with your new bodies. So what are our job descriptions are going to be? All the Bible tells us is if you'll be faithful now in little things, just little things, and don't deny the faith, then I'll cause you to be over much later. And with, with that much of a background, our involvement, we should be interested in chapter 8 because it deals primarily now with the promise of this coming kingdom. Uh, it's divided into two, two sections, 1 through 17, and then verses 18 to 23. So we're going to dive right in and let it speak for itself. This goes back to last week's study. These two should have been done back to back because um, it's just talking about the people and it's not dealing primarily with what's going to happen through 9, 10, and 11, which is a section all by itself. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord. I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now again, this is going to happen. This verse right here uh, is 18 times. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Each one with his staff in his hand. Uh, Because of their great age, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it's marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of the people in these days will also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. For thus says the Lord of hosts, this is ten times, behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, I will bring them back. Now, before we're through here, I'm going to be taking you to um, um, Isaiah, talk about the second coming and bringing them back. They will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people. I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, who were in the day that the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. For before these days there were no wages for man nor hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men everywhere against his neighbors. And always going back to the reason that they actually went into captivity in the first place. 
And chapter 7 is a very, if you remember from last week, strong rebuke. Why didn't you listen? You should have listened to Jeremiah. You should have listened to your fathers. You didn't have to be disciplined. And um, verse 11, but now, he's going back. This is the way it was. But he says, but now, this is God's grace in verse 11. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. Now they're back. The spanking is over. Now he wants, we made a point of this on Sunday in dealing with um, how God corrects. After the correction, it stings. But then he puts in front of you what his plans are for you. And we were in Hebrews chapter 12, talking about the necessity of being corrected. And when you are corrected, don't be faint. Don't, don't, I'm not going to follow the Lord anymore because he gave me a spanking. Boo-hoo. Instead, it says, strengthen um, the knees and the hands that hang down. And, um, you know, we'd say today, suck it up. You know, you've been spanked. So what? You needed it. And uh, now that that discipline has been imparted, we're not to faint, and we're not to think it a strange thing when we go through a trial. It's part of the walk uh, with the Lord. Good place for an amen. You know, it's part of our walk with the Lord is telling the whole truth. And that is, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to walk it with the Lord. Because you're a child, every child receives correction and discipline. And if you don't, then you're not a child. That means you're not born again. And so this is important, I think, uh, especially when we're telling people um, about what it means to be a Christian, that we tell them the whole truth, what they're, what they're really getting themselves into. But this is why studying the whole Bible is so important. It's not about you. It is about the Lord. He has a plan, and this is what we're reading tonight, his plan for Israel, but also his plan for you and me. And the goal is not to see what we could get from God, but what we can give to the Lord. Another place for a good amen. I hear Kenneth Copeland just got a new Gulf Stream. That's, uh, I don't know if it's in the news bites or not. We were talking about it in the prayer room. Huh, interesting. Those babies are expensive. And they're the, the best, uh, uh, some of the best jets in the world, all custom made. And that's, we have um, people in the fellowship here that, Work on it, Gulfstream. Everything's luxury to the max. Well, you know, I'll call Kenneth Copeland out. What he did is a complete misrepresentation of what it means to follow the Lord. So if you're following Kenneth Copeland's teaching, well, if Kenneth Copeland can have a Gulfstream, why can't I? Well, because the Lord said, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And where he went, people and the women came behind him and followed him. And uh, the Lord says, now, when I send you guys out, I don't want you to, to, uh, I just want to send you out. And uh, when you go to a place, uh, say peace to this house, and, and, um, they're expected to be taken care of. You know, and one of the things that Jesus talked about we, that we did on Sunday, Matthew 23, was going 
to the scribes and the Pharisees because that's what they were doing. It says, you make a pretense for widows' houses. Do you know how many people, little old widows, are watching Kenneth Copeland? And he's saying, as a prosperity teacher, if you'll just tithe your your face seed to this ministry, that God's going to come back and bless you a hundredfold with it. And a little old widow sitting watching TV, what does she know? It's Kenneth Copeland. And so she does. So what's the fruit that I see that needs to be exposed? Well, Kenneth Copeland is a charlatan, and he is a false prophet of the, the real gospel just by doing that. Now, I'm not going to rag on Kenneth Copeland anymore tonight. Did I mention that he bought a Gulf Stream? <laughs> All right, where we go? Well, I left off here. I said everyone against his neighbor. This now, he's turning it, and he's, you know, showing grace to them. I'm not going to treat you, verse 11, like I did in former times. <clears throat> For the seed shall be uh, prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to, to possess all these things, and it will come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you. You shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. So we have the wandering Jew being despised. But let's read it twice to make the point. And the point is, what was a curse to the people in the world, but during the millennium, let's read verse 23 twice, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nation will grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Everything is going to change. Anti-Semitism is going to change, and instead of of, um, of curse, cursing the nation of Israel, or the Jewish people, uh, they will be the blessing. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things you shall do. And this is what he wants now. And this is what the scribes and Pharisees were missing. Speak each man truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, for justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath, for these things I hate, says the Lord. In other words, be a nice guy. Be a nice gal. And be it to the brothers and to your neighbors, whether they know the Lord or not. When you do good things for people, they will take notice of it, especially if they're not expecting it. But it's not the other way around. It's not to serve the Lord so that, like Copeland, who I said I wouldn't mention again, <laughs> it's all about him. And um, the opulent lifestyle that's just so much not a part of the nature of the Lord and what he taught. As a matter of fact, very sharply, he calls them blind guides and uh, vipers and hypocrites. So verses 1 through 17 is one section. Verses 18 to 23 
is now to rejoice in Israel's future. And now we're talking about, again, the kingdom age. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasting for the house of Judah, therefore love, truth, and peace. And that brings us to our text from last Sunday. These were our verses. For thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts, and I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. For thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, in what days? The Bible is telling us here that God has a plan. And from the time we were little on, it's our, it's, um, the verses, Colossians 1, uh, verse, I think it's so, first three verses. If you're born again, then seek those things that are above where Christ is. So if we're born again, we're to be, you ever hear the old saying, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? I've heard that saying, but I really don't believe it. I've yet to met, meet the person that the Bible says that's what we're supposed to do. Set our affection on things that are above rather than on things that are of this earth. Why? Well, the rationale is everything here is temporal, but everything there is eternal. So we're in a testing phase right now. Are we going to stick to the, the, the simplicity of the gospel, try to live the way our Lord lived, and then what we're thinking about on the side is, how can I do something nice for somebody? That's what he says he loves. To love truth, to love justice, to do good things. Uh, for what reason? Well, because I love the Lord. I'm a beggar who found bread. And I found out that nothing satisfies my soul like this book. Good place for an amen. And I've been around the mountain. I've tasted it all. And there's nothing there again. And um, there is pleasure in sin, the Bible says. Some people don't come to Christ because they really want to live in sin. But it's only for a season. But the Bible here, in chapter 8, as we're finishing it up, is telling us that God has his plans. And we're to be focused upon that, and we're to be pointing the finger this way. And that's what we need to be continually reminded of. Why? Because if you go home and flick on the tube, you're going to see a commercial after commercial after commercial and say, you got to have this, you got to have this, you got to have this, you got to have that. And I say, no, you don't, no, you don't, no, you don't, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, we just read it. it. With fluid and clothing, Paul said, I've learned to be content. And whatever state I'm in, are you content? I mean, can you actually um, do a self-litmus test and ask yourself, am I just content with what I have, or am I striving? Pastor Chuck used to have a saying, if you strive to gain it, you have to strive to maintain it. And it's true. You know, if you strive to gain it, you've got to strive to maintain it. 
And it's just nice being free. And, um, and, I, and to be content with such things as what we have. Now, having said that, if the Lord has prospered you and blessed you, then there's, money is amoral. It could be used for good or evil. And um, uh, just as long as the Lord, you realize that you're a, a steward of what the Lord is, has given to you. All right, Sunday's text, we uh, just read that the day is coming, verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language will grasp the sleeve of, of a Jewish man and say, can we go with you? Can we hang? We'd say today, can we hang together? Can we go to Jerusalem with you? And uh, because we've heard that God is with you and he's in Jerusalem. So 7 and 8 is a section just by itself. As we look at chapter 9, uh, we have um, this um, prophetic burden with the coming, beginning 9, 10, and 11, is going to deal with the first coming of the Lord. There's going to be prophecies in here that are going to be familiar to you. Um, and as I was studying today, I was just amazed how Zechariah, led by the Holy Spirit, weaves in and out of history. Uh, the first uh, eight verses that we're going to um, read here deal with the judgments upon the Gentile nations that came against Jerusalem. And primarily what we have in view here is Alexander the Great putting an end to the Philistine, which have always been the main enemy during David's time. Um, They finally will come and cease to be a people after verse 8. So let's pick it up. This is the judgment of the surrounding nations. And basically, Jeremiah is telling them that God is going to um, deal with them. Now, remember, during this time, um, we're in the Babylonian period, which will come to an end by the Medes and the Persians. And now we're jumping ahead to hear uh, something that was accomplished by Alexander the Great. Okay, verse 1. The burden, and we have, and we see um, in this new division, it it will go over some of the same ground. It begins with the people of Israel as they were in the days of Zechariah when they were small, discouraged remnant attempting to rebuild the temple. But now God has raised up Haggai and Zechariah uh, to encourage them to rebuild the temple. This section here now is nine through the rest of this is the temple has now been built. So let's pick it up. The first eight verses here is going to deal with the, God is going to deal with Israel's enemies. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men in the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it. Also against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Uh, For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. 
he will destroy her power in the sea. Um, the city of Tyre moved from the mainland, and they built uh, their own city. Um, and we have it being laid siege to a couple different times, but it wasn't until Alexander the Great came along where we had the destruction, actually made a causeway fulfilling a prophecy, built a causeway out to the island and took the city of Tyre. And now we're dealing with verse 5, we're dealing with the Philistines. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. Ekron, for he dried up her expectations. And the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. So we just named the Philistine cities. And they were, uh, especially during David's time, the number one enemy against Israel. Um, They actually defeated Israel one time and took the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the temple of Dagon. And the Lord (laughs) took short order of that one because the next morning they go in and there's a torso of Dagon was laying head first and just just a torso. And it happened two days in a row. And uh, they said, we got to get rid of this ark and um, because uh, the Ark of the Covenant here has become a curse. And they send it back to Israel on a cart um, with two cows, and they, they follow them. To, they, they pick cows that had just had calves. So the natural thing for a cow that just had a calf is make sure that the calf is taken care of. Um, so they took the calves away from them. Their natural tendency would have not been to go away, but they put it on a cart, and it says that the calves went on their way to Jerusalem. Now, um, this next trip coming up in November, we stop at um, Bet, um, Bet Shem, yeah, Bet Shem, which is just a little east of Jerusalem. Uh, we go to the ruins, and I like to point to the road that you can all, you can see the if you could look far enough on a clear day, you could actually see the Mediterranean. Well, of course, Gaza is on the Mediterranean. And that's where these cities would have been. And I like to point out, because it really makes the Bible come alive, I'd say right on this road right here that exists all those years ago, um, the Ark of the Covenant came. And the men of Bet Shemesh looked into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, don't quote me on the numbers, you'll have to, pick them up, but it was in, I think, 14,000, maybe 24,000. I can't remember the exact number. But because they looked and did not have respect for the holiness of God, uh, these men were judged. And I'm getting sidetracked from my Bible study here. But um, um, here is judgment where he's going to judge um, the Philistines, And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, verse 6. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abomination from between his teeth. But he who remains, 
even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. And I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No one shall oppress, pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. So as we start chapter 9, this section, he says, those that have come against you, in this case, and after Alexander defeated these nations, this was accomplished by him, it's a fact of history, uh, there are no longer any people who can say they're Philistines. They ceased to be an ethnic group. They were destroyed after that. There's no such thing as a Philistine because they were um, consumed with, with, uh, with another culture and they were dispersed. All right, now verse 9, all of a sudden, we're going to switch gears big time. And one of the things you, you want to be aware of is that when we study the Old Testament, this is the norm. It's very normal to give the Lord saying, I'm going to do this, and all of a sudden have a prophecy about the first coming of the Lord. You guys are all familiar with it. Uh, maybe some of you aren't, and we'll just take verse 9 for right now. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, the Messiah, is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a, um, a Learjet made in Appleton. No, that's not what it says there. Riding lowly on a donkey, a colt, and the foal of a donkey. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. This is a prophecy. It is fulfilled in Luke 19. The date is April 6, 32 AD. We know that from Daniel 9. Picking it up in verse 28 of 19, he says, he said just Jesus talking to him as they went going to Jerusalem. It came to pass when he came near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount called Olives, this is the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples and say, I want you to go into the village opposite you uh, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. This would be comparable to the cow's natural instinct to leave their calves. Um, any horse or donkey that's never been ridden doesn't like it, and it reacts accordingly by bucking. That doesn't happen here. This one, no one has ever sat on. And the Lord says, loose him and bring him here. And then he says, oh, by the way, if anybody says to you, what are you doing? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of him. How cool it must have been hanging out with the Lord. He said, okay, this is going to happen today. You'll be doing your thing, and this is, you're going to run into this guy. You're going to steal his donkey, and he's going to ask you, what do you think you're doing? And all you have to say is, well, the Lord has need of him. So what happens? So those who were sent departed and found it just as they said. But as they were loosing a colt, the owner said, what do you guys think you're doing? Dwight's paraphrase. And it says, the Lord has need of him. End of discussion. That 
And they brought him to Jesus, and they threw on their garments on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And he went and spread their clothes on the road. And then as they were now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been done. Well, what had just been done just prior to this is the resurrection of a man who had been dead for four days. You don't think that got around town quick? And the very one who did it is now coming. And he's coming on a donkey that Zechariah prophesied about um, 500 years, um, roughly around that time earlier. And they began to quote Psalm 118 as he's riding on this donkey. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now it's important that we read this because this is familiar territory for um, some of us, but those are some are hearing it for the first time. This prophecy is from Zechariah is being fulfilled on this day, but this is a very special day. It was a day that Daniel prophesied to the day that the Messiah would come, and the Lord would sometime do a miracle, and then he'd say, don't tell anybody. That was the norm, but not this time. They're worshiping him as the Messiah, and the scribes and the Pharisees know it all too well because they're quoting Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm that can only be sung to the Messiah, and that's what they're doing. They're saying, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees picked up on it, verse 39, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They think you're the Messiah. They're quoting Psalm 118. But he answered and said, I tell you that if these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. There had to be a donkey that he was riding on. Why? Because Zechariah said so. That's a prophecy. And um, he is now coming down lowly. And he says, it has to happen because it's written. And he goes from saying that to this great joy that the people were having. Talk about a roller coaster ride. He begins to weep. Now, this is one of two times that Jesus wept. And um, one was just a couple days earlier when he wept over the death of Lazarus. And I'm not quite sure about why. I got one of two feelings about that. He, he told them uh, that, that um, he could have been weeping for uh, their lack of faith and knowing that he knew what he was doing. Mary, Martha, you know me. And uh, why aren't you trusting me? Where's your faith? He could have been weeping for that reason. Or he, he could have had genuine empathy because they thought their brother was really dead and they weren't going to see him again until the resurrection. That's what Sarah said. Yeah, well, yeah, Lord, I know. We'll see him again at the resurrection. But not. what about right now? Our heart is broken right now. And so that could have been the other reason. 
and I really don't know which it is. But this is the second time. He drew near the city and he wept over it, saying, Oh, if, if only you had known, even especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden for your eyes. And now he prophesies. He prophesies about an event that's going to happen 38 years later in 70 AD when the Romans, who are now in power, not Alexander the Great, but the Romans, came after Alexander. And um, they will build an embankment around you, surround you on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another because. The because is important. This is going to happen to Jerusalem because you did not know the time of your visitation. Gang, that's why we study Bible prophecy. They should have known. Daniel knew. Daniel 1, 9, verse 1. Daniel said, I understood. I was reading the prophet Jeremiah that 70 years are determined, and then it's time to go home. Well, after 70 years, that's when he prayed. Lord, it's time to go home. And so I'm just going to leave that right there because I want to try to keep, keep on schedule. Let's go back. So here we have a prophecy. The first eight verses, notice how it switches radically. From Alexander the Great, he was the one that put an end to the um, ethnic group that we call the Philistines. Verse 9 is a prophecy that has been fulfilled. Now, between verse 9 and 10, we have a gap of at least 2,000 years. What I just read is a, is a fact that took place during Jesus' day. But in verse 10, he said, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the house, the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. In other words, there won't be war, no more wars. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And we have between verse 9 and verse 10 what I like to call the gap. And we are now looking at something that has not yet happened. The kingdom, aged a thousand millennial year kingdom, is yet to be fulfilled. Uh, verses 11, 17 now, is going to talk to us a little bit about what's going to happen before, right before the kingdom age begins. And it, it touches on, um, in that day, verse 11 through 17, is a reference, when it says, in that day, it's a reference to the seven-year period of time that we call the tribulation. 69 of the 70 weeks that God gave to Daniel, 69 are fulfilled. But there's one seven-year period of time yet not fulfilled, and now we'll read about that. Let's read 11 through 17. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, your prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you, for I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow for Ephraim, raised up the sons O Zion against the sons O Greece, and I'll make you like the sword of a mighty man. 
Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwind from the south. And the Lord of hosts will defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with slaying stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like a basin, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day. This is during the period of time where they're supernaturally protected, a remnant of the Jewish people, during the tribulation period. As a flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted up like a banner over his land. For how great is their goodness, and how great their beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. So going through this, the Lord will defend them during the, what's referred to here as in that day. Um, he supernaturally protects them. We could really get sidetracked here by going to Revelation 12 and talking where they go to. But I want to keep on going here to chapter 10. Chapter 10, we have the first verse. What we read here is sort of a, a restoration of the land and um, its beauty. And um, there are some who think that the first verse of chapter 10 should be the last verse of chapter 9. I tend to agree with that because it follows the train of thought. And it talks about, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord will make flashing clouds and will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Well, just last week, I, was, uh, I get a daily newsletter from Barry Siegel who writes updates that I read them every single morning. About three weeks ago, he said, please, please, please pray for rain. We need rain. And this last week, they had torrential rains. And this is one of the things where it talks about the early and the latter rain, um, where Jerusalem was desolate, and there really wasn't rain, and nobody to tend the fields. But when they began to come back as a people, the rains began again. Um, they are concerned now because of the flash floods. They're concerned about too much rain and the flash floods that come down from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. It drops off 1,300 feet really quick. <clears throat> and it's all barren wilderness there. But I can report from the time that they were asking for rain, now they got too much. And um, they're talking about skiing on Mount Hermon because of the storm that's coming through. A lot of it's hitting. And we're actually watching verse 10 um, being fulfilled as most of the water that um, they get from the Sea of Galilee. Um, when we were there last time, the water levels were um, a little low, but uh, higher, higher than usual. Verses 2 through three is regressing just a little bit. Now, beginning with verse two, we have a turning back again to the subject of judgment. 
Although God intends to strengthen them from their last days and intends to bring them into the millennium, there are certain things which are radically wrong in their midst. He immediately puts his finger down on what is wrong in Israel. The thing which was really causing the trouble in the nation was idolatry. Now, when we go to Israel, the first place we go to is Tel Aviv. And I'm also, I've always bothered by it because here are people who are getting, they're all excited about, we're going to Israel. We're going to see Israel. And what's the first thing they see is Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is known as Sin City in the entire planet. And um, um, you can Google this one, be a Berean. And I try to tell them that this is the only place in Jerusalem and Israel that looks like this. But it's known for, well, it's known for prostitution. Let's be frank about it. And um, I have friends in ministry that try to get the girls off the street, take them up to a city called Shaphat, which is up in the Galilee. And um, they have a sort of a retreat place there just to get them far away from Tel Aviv as you can get and minister to them and get them off the streets. And it is prevalent um, in in there. So verse 2, um, Israel is back regathered in the land, but it's sin city. Then they, they talk about what's the holiest city in the world. Well, that happens, they say, that's Jerusalem. So you're here, you have the best and the worst, all in the same, same country. Verse 2 and 3. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. Uh, they comfort in vain. Therefore the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there's no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and make them as his royal horse in the battle. On these verse, verses here, um, we have the reality of, of uh, visiting the land today as primarily secular. There are Messianic Jews. Um, uh, a friend of mine um, um, Sammy, who is um, runs Inspired Travel, um, a ministry group over there for many, many years. His father was the first Messianic pastor in Israel. And so there's a large group in the Tiberias area, um, but overall they are a minority. Most of Israel is secular and given over um, to what um, secular people are given over to. And the Lord says he's going to deal with them. Now from verses 4 through 12, we have the return to Israel in the last days. So I'll just read that and let it speak for itself. From him comes a cornerstone. Um, verse 4, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together, they shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. 
They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. And those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord, and I will whistle from them and gather them together. Have you ever been in a crowd of people and you want to get somebody's attention but not make a distraction? You go, psst, psst. And people are looking around and, no, not you. Just, psst, I'm trying to talk to you. That's the idea here. He's doing this to the nations of the world. And um, I have my own ideas of why, what I think is going to happen here, but they're just my guesses. Um, What's openly talked about at the Temple Mount Institute is they know where the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Covenant is, and just to say that should blow every person's mind here. They're adamant. Now I've I've known about this for 25 years because of my friendship with um, um, Rabbi Heim Richman, who's a part of the Sanhedrin. And for years he knew this, but would not come public with it. But if, for those of you who were on our last trip to Israel, we went to the Temple Mount Institute, and the last thing they say is we know where the location of the Ark of the Covenant is. And everybody should go, you said, what? <laughs> I know, this is, you know, Indiana Jones, the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. Yeah, we're talking about the same Ark of the Covenant that the men of Bet Shemesh looked into and died. The same Ark, one of the greatest, the greatest archaeological piece in the world, and we're letting that go over our heads. Well, what if they do bring it out? Psst, time to come back to Israel. There's a lot of people already there. But always the problem and the barriers are... I call him B.B. Benjamin Yatanyahu, is finding living space for all the people that are returning right now. I remember when we talked a little bit about Dubai and the Palm City that they built in the water just so that they could have more luxurious living space. Well, they're talking about doing that in Israel off the shores of Tel Aviv, making islands where because of the scarcity for the people that are returning. This whole chapter here is about them returning. Psst, 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 come on back. It's time to come home. And then it says, I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in their countries, and they shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt, from the land of Assyria, bring them back from the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea and the depths of the river shall be dry. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart 
And so I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they will walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I hear those pages turning. And look at verse 11, which is a prophecy. It will come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Now, what are we studying? We're studying Zechariah, and we're talking about them coming back from Babylon to Israel. That's the first time. But now, Jesus said what we just read, that because they didn't know the time of their coming, that the Romans would come, and not one stone would be left upon another. That was in 70 A.D., and they were dispersed into all the world. And now, a prophecy, the Lord will set his hand the second time to recover the remnant of his people. From the same places, from Assyria and Egypt, Pathans, Cush, Elam, Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. Just what we read back in Zechariah, which you can turn back to. Because as we look at chapter 10, um, the chapter is basically about um, bringing all people back into the land. We've, we've watched that, that be fulfilled, which brings us to chapter 11. Now, chapter 11, the theme of this is that Jesus is rejected as the king at his first coming as a good shepherd, and it's going to end with them accepting the Antichrist all in this chapter. And it's going to give us information. We know that the Antichrist in the middle, somebody's going to try to kill him. And it would be equivalent to um, JFK being shot in the head. Only the Antichrist has miraculous recovery. What Zechariah does is actually give us detail on some of the parts of his body that is actually going to be wounded. So let's pick it up, chapter 11. Um, This chapter concludes the division of the burden. So 9, 10, and 11 is one section, which hinges on the first coming of Christ, um, the riding on the donkey and so forth. It brings us to the Roman period, um, this, as the Maccabean period before it, is a very dark period. So from here, if we go locally, um, they're living in a time where he's now going to tell them a little bit that they're in for some tough times yet ahead. And they're, he's going to be talking about um, 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 the Romans especially and the Maccabean re- revolt which happened between the Old Testament and the New. All right, let's pick it up in verse 1. Open your doors. We'll read the first 10 verses. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is a sound of wailing shepherds. For their glory is in ruins. There is a sound of roaring lions. For the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. 
For thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them, and feed no guilt those who sell them. Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give every one to his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. Now this is going to be a reference to the Caesars, and we're going to talk about two covenants here that God made with Israel. There were unconditional covenants that he made, and that's the millennial kingdom. That's going to come. But then there was uh, covenants that were conditional. And uh, what I mean by that is if they would be obedient to the Lord and his ways, that he wouldn't, um, he would break that covenant with them and deal with them according to their sins. And that's the example of the whole 70-year captivity. So we're going to read here shortly about breaking the covenant. But we've got to understand that there's two. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So I fed the flock for slaughter. In particular, the poor of the flock, I took for myself two staffs. One I called beauty, and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds, probably reference to the false prophets. In one mouth, my soul loathes them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. Uh, let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left each other's flesh. And so I took my staff beauty and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with the peoples. Now, when it says covenant here, now we have to talk about conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. This covenant here, the Lord says, I made a covenant with you, but it was predicated on that you would follow after me. You didn't do that, so I'm breaking it. An unconditional covenant is I'm going to eventually, even though I'm judging you for not following me, I wanted to bless you. I didn't want to spank you, but you went after your idols. And... um, the idea of beauty and bonds here, it deals with shepherds. And a shepherd had, a, he had, he had two instruments. One was a staff with a hook on that he would use to prod the sheep. If they'd get away, he could hook them and bring them back. That's one of them. And the other one was called bonds. The other thing he carried was a big club. And that was to take on anybody that would try to steal the sheep or um, an animal uh, that would at- attack the sheep, and he would use those as instruments. But what we want to pick up on here is it clearly says that he's going to break the covenant which I have made with all the peoples. And people have used this for replacement theology. God has is done with his people. It says so right here in Zechariah chapter 12. No, no, no. There's two covenants, conditional and unconditional. And this one is predicated on, I'm going to break it because you did not follow me, but you allow these idols to enter in. So it was broken on that day. Thus, the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Now, switching, just like we switched in chapter 9, just flip back as we get ready to 
kind of wind this together. Let's go back to verse 9. I want you to see the pattern that's being established here. <clears throat> Chapter 9, remember verses 1 through 8, is judgment on the surrounding nations. Alexander the Great took Tyre. He defeated all the Philistines. There are no more Philistines. And then at the end of verse 8, it changes completely, and we have the prophecy of Jesus riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. And then we have a 2,000-year gap, and we're in the kingdom age. Now we're going to see that happen again in chapter 11. He's dealing with them in 1 through 11, a covenant that he broke with them but he broke it because it was predicated on them following the Lord. Is everybody following me? Okay, it's not breaking the covenant that he has finished with Israel. God has, a, in his wisdom, um, allowed, well, hardening, it says in Romans, hardening has happened to Israel in part, only in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. God in his wisdom allowed Israel to become hard-hearted. John 1, 11 says he came into his own and his own people rejected him. They rejected the true Messiah, but they're going to accept, Jesus said, and we'll cover this more thoroughly in depth on Sunday. He says, another is going to come in his own name, and you're going to accept this one. And he's talking about the Antichrist. So what we have in verse 12 is now we're switching gears and this refers to Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's a prophecy. Then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages and if not, refrain. So they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that pricely price that set on me So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw um, them into the house of the Lord for the potter. All right, let's just stop here, and I'm going to have you turn to Matthew chapter 26. So turn there quickly, please. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 15. Find it myself here. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to portray him. Well, you might say, well, that's just a coincidence that it just happened to be the same amount. Well, go to Matthew 27 verse 9 and 10, and that'll put a rest to that debate. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And they took counsel, and this would have been the scribes and the Pharisees after Judas brought the money back and threw it down. They they thought, what are we going to do with the 30 pieces of silver that we gave to Judas? In verse 7, they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Verse 9. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver and the value of him who was priced, whom they 
on the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. We will be doing an in-depth study on this on Sunday morning. That just to get your attention tonight. Let's go back and finish it up. Verses 14 is one verse by itself. Then I cut in two the other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. Let's just deal with verse 14. The chopping up of the second staff indicates the complete severance of all relationship between the shepherd and Israel, his flock. It is as if God is saying, when you sold me, when you turned me over into the hands of the Gentiles to be crucified, I broke my covenant. Titus, the Romans will soon be here. That's what Jesus prophesied in Luke 18. And you will be scattered throughout the world. The Messiah came, the nations rejected him, and the Jewish people are still scattered throughout the world today, but they're coming back. Now it switches, and the last couple verses of this chapter are going to deal with what's called the worthless shepherd or the idle shepherd. So let's finish it from verses 15 through 17. And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand, But he will eat the flesh of the fat and um, tear the hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Well, that's details that we do not have. And the last place I'll have you turn tonight is Revelation chapter 13, where it just gives us a little information. And this verse will tie all of chapter 11 together. He said, when he came, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Israel believes today only the Messiah can build the temple. And we we studied that uh, Uh, We get that from Zechariah, that the branch, remember last week, will be having the oversight of the building of the temple. They take that literally. So only the one that can bring peace in the Middle East and have the temple built, that's how they'll know it's their Messiah. Are they set up right now or are they set up? They're set up big time. Um, We know that Jesus Christ is not returning until after the seven-year tribulation at the Battle of Armageddon. But at the beginning of that seven-year period of time, we have the Antichrist. So we read Revelation 13, verse 3, about the Antichrist. I saw that one of his heads has been mortally wounded. I want you to think of JFK. When Walter Cronkite came on with tears and said at 1 o'clock this afternoon, I think that was the time, Everybody remembers where they were, what they were doing, when JFK was pronounced dead. Unthinkable. Well, how much more unthinkable would it have been 
where Walter Cronkite comes on at three and says, we don't know what happened, but he's alive. This is exactly what's happening here. A mortal head wound, and his deadly wound was healed, and the world marveled and followed the beast. We have a false resurrection. But what Zechariah tells us that we don't have in Revelation, and again, I'll just close with it, is the detail of the head wound. The worthless shepherd who leaves the flock, a sword will be against his arm and his right eye. His arm will completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So evidently the Antichrist is going to be going around with a sling on and one of his eyes is going to be missing. We don't get that from Revelation. We get that from Zechariah chapter 11, which nobody in their wildest dreams thought that I would be able to get through four chapters. I know what you're thinking, but we did it. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, this is a lot to take in, and we stand in awe as we see the accuracy of your word and prophecy. And Lord, bottom line again, your word tells us what's going to happen before it happens. And um, we just pray for uh, your people, Israel. And uh, we pray that, um, as your word tells us, that we would be counted worthy to escape those things that are coming upon this world. So thank you for the study tonight. And we pray for Sunday morning, Lord, as we take an in-depth look into this prophecy of the 30 pieces of silver and the practical application that it has for the church of Jesus Christ. In your name I pray, amen.